right. Mark chapter 14, you can make your way there, and we will land there in a little bit. Um, let me just, uh, first of all, just before I get into the sermon, just say it is a joy to be with you guys on Sunday mornings. I love coming here on Sunday mornings. And uh, for a lot of reasons, like I, I've really enjoyed the study of Mark, and I get to be part of preaching that occasionally. So um, that's been just a, a, a great thing. It's been fun to be in the book of Mark. But um, the thing I love is that this church sings. And like we have some talented musicians, and I'm thankful for them. They're, they're great. They do a great job of leading us in song. But I never notice them as much as I notice the, the body of Christ worshiping God together here. And I've, I've thought that particularly over the last couple of weeks, it's just like, it's just so good to hear people singing and being together and lifting up the name of Jesus and knowing that I'm part of a group of people who love the gospel, who love God's Son, who are here because we love each other and because we love God. So it is, it is a joy to be here, and it's a joy to open the Bible with you. It is just a privilege to open the text of God's Word and spend time studying and examining and thinking about Scripture. Um, you guys are a joy to preach to, <laughs> and um, I look forward to these opportunities that I have um, quite significantly. Mark has been good study. It's been a good study. Let me say one warning. If you're very sensitive to smells today, you may want to move a little bit towards the back, okay? Because we're going to be in, in a, a text of Scripture that is going to be very rich in um, multi-sensory experience, and I may or may not play on that a little bit, so watch out, okay? Just a warning, fair warning. I'm not liable for anything now. Um, if you remember, way back in Mark chapter 4, I think we were there in about 2017, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus told a story, and then he explained the story. The story has been called the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds. doesn't really matter what the title is, but Jesus explains a sower or a farmer who goes out into a field and starts distributing seeds around the ground. And those seeds landed on four different types of soil. I wonder if I didn't put it up on the screen, if you could remember what those were. Um, some of the seeds landed on the path, if you remember right. They couldn't quite get their roots in, and so the birds came and snatched them away. And Jesus would later explain that this is, this is Satan coming and taking away the word of God from those who hear it. Some of the seeds landed among the rocks, maybe kind of sprung up a little bit, but as soon as the heat and as soon as the, the wind or other things came, they just didn't have the root system or the nourishment to endure, and so they couldn't endure the hardship, and they wilted and died. Some seeds, some of the Word of God that goes out is like that. It, it looks fruitful, but when hardship comes, it withers up and dies. Some of the seeds landed in the thorny ground, the thorny ground. They came up again, but they were choked out by the thorns. And Jesus explains that this is the desire for other things. There's maybe this interest in God, but it's just choked out by the desires of this world. And finally, thankfully, some of the seed lands on good soil, and it sprouts up, and it is fruitful, and it bears fruit, it multiplies, 
And we're thankful for the Word of God, which has that seed. We've seen these reactions, these, these four different... Jesus has brought the kingdom of God near, he says. He has proclaimed the Word of God. He is the Word of God in flesh, in front of people. And we've seen throughout the book of Mark, as we've studied this, people react in exactly these four ways, haven't we? Some hear the Word of God and reject it when things get hard. Some hear the word of God and mysteriously, it seems, just just gone. Their their, interest is gone all of a sudden. Some hear the word of God, experience the word of God, and reject it in favor of other things. And then there's a few people in Mark, a very, very few, it seems, that yield this good fruit. We'll see long-term, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven, that there will be more and more people, thankfully, that receive this with, in, in good soil and bear more fruit. The church is born. But throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is, is doing all sorts of things, teaching all sorts of things. He is there. He is showing his divinity. He is showing his grace. He is showing his love. And people are responding in these four ways. In Mark 14, we're going to see two stories that show us these four reactions to Jesus with very vivid, um, in very vivid ways. We've seen these reactions to Jesus, and we've seen these reactions to the news he's proclaimed in Mark, and now we get a few stories where all four reactions are put side by side, huddled together. So you remember the flow of Mark so far. Mark has introduced Jesus. He's given given us an example of miracle after miracle that shows that Jesus is God in flesh, but then Jesus has turned toward Jerusalem. In the last few chapters, Jesus has moved towards Jerusalem. He's gotten into all kinds of arguments with the religious authorities. He's given some teaching in Mark 13 that was mysterious, and Nate handled that, and I'm thankful that he got to take that chapter. The emphasis in Mark 13 wasn't on mystery necessarily. The emphasis was on Jesus' command to watch, to be alert, to look for the coming Messiah, to look for the Son of Man who is coming, to look for Jesus. The emphasis is for people to be alert. Now remember that in Mark 13, because as a page turns to Mark 14, you might ask, well, what what does alertness actually look like? What does it look like? I mean, I get the abstract idea of be ready for Jesus, look out for Jesus, or whatever that means, but what does it actually mean? Does it mean I need to like go up on a hillside and make camp and just kind of look at the stars and wait for Jesus' return. In fact, some people in the first century and throughout Christian history have done exactly that, just physically abandoned everything in order because they expected Jesus to return. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and corrects their behavior in that, says, don't abandon your earthly responsibilities, but still be alert, be aware of Jesus. Well, does this mean that I need to figure out with charts and color-coded pencils when Jesus will specifically return with a Bible in one hand and my, well, I guess you don't really have a newspaper, but my, my screen in the other hand looking for signs and things like that? No, that's not exactly what Jesus means here by be alert. It's almost, it's almost as if Mark says, as he's writing his gospel story and reminding us of the story of Jesus, okay, Mark says this, I'll show you someone who alertly recognizes the Son of God in her midst. And I'll also contrast that with a bunch of knuckleheads who completely don't understand what they have in front of them. And so in Mark 14, the disciples, the 
religious leaders are not alert to what they have in front of them. And an unnamed woman, some say Mary, probably a different person, an unnamed woman acknowledges Jesus and is commended for it. Just like Mark often does, there's two stories that are wrapped around each other in his typical style. And I want to read those, and then I'm going to pray. So Mark chapter 14, verse 1, says this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, may we respond to your presence and your word with the same sort of worship that this woman does, with joy, with sacrifice, with delight. Help us to see you this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, you saw the two stories there. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 are, the, are one story. They're the story of the kind of the arrangement for the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus between the chief priests and Judas Iscariot. It's a story of the plot thickening around Jesus, what's going to happen to him. It's a story of the net tightening around Jesus as he's in Jerusalem. His death is drawing near it. You can feel it in Mark that this is going towards Jesus' death. You didn't feel it at the first couple chapters of Mark as much, but as Mark has progressed in his reminder of what Jesus' life was like, you feel it now. Like This does not seem like it's going to end well for Jesus. And here you have one story that kind of fits into that. But then in between that, in verses 3 through 9, you see this not-so-quiet evening in the life of Jesus. It's an evening, just a simple dinner party, just a, a bunch of guys hanging out, having a meal with friendship and food and then a little controversy. And in these two stories, there are four different parties, either an individual or a group, of par- a group of individuals. There are four parties, and what I want you to do as we examine these is to notice these four individuals or this group of individuals and ask, what do they value here? What is their heart set on? What do they want more than anything else in this world? Because that's what Mark is going to do. He's going to contrast these four parties. He's going to say they each have a different value. 
Some of them are a little similar, perhaps, but they each have a different value, and those values change how they react to Jesus. You have four different reactions to Jesus based on four different values in this world. One will be commended. Three, by Mark at least, and how he tells the story, will be dismissed. In the end, in the end, Jesus will be seen as more valuable than any power we might wield, any possession we might gain, or any position we might hold. And that, that's a nice little statement to put up there. But some of you are saying, really? <laughs> Jesus is more valuable than any possession I can get? Really? I, that's not quantifiable, right? I can't like say Jesus is worth 10 and my car is worth 7. And so, yes, Jesus is worth more. Like, it's just not quantifiable. How, how do you measure that? How do you know that? How do you live that? Because I, like, that's what I've heard in Mark. That's what you've seen in Mark. That's what you see Mark pushing, all of Scripture pushing us towards. How do you live that? And Mark says, I'm not going to give you a principle. I'm going to tell you a couple stories. And that's what he does in chapter 14, 1 through 11. It's a bold, counterintuitive statement that I think sums up this passage. And Mark is going to illustrate it, and give it life by telling these two things that happened to Jesus. So here's the setting of these stories. It's in Jerusalem the big religious and political capital of the area. And if you see in verse uh, 1 there, it is during uh, two days before the feast of uh, the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread, two different festivals that happened within a few days of each other. During this time, people from all over Israel thronged to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was a busy crazy town during this time. Everybody from Galilee, from the north, from the south, all the Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just a swollen population. Some scholars say that up, the population grew by up to 10 times. Like, you can just imagine that. Like, it'd be everybody in Chaska and in Carver County having, like, multiple people living in their home, all that kind of stuff, and just people to packed in for this religious festival. Happened every year. People are excited about it. If you remember the Super Bowl in Minneapolis in 2019, I believe it was, just people from all over the country coming here to party and have a good time and celebrate and everybody from Minneapolis kind of leaving and going out because our team was well gone by that time. But um, you kind of remember the feel of Minneapolis and of this area then. It's just excitement. We'll just multiply that. Because Jesus is now here. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who has raised the dead and stilled storms and fed thousands with a little boy's lunch. Jesus is here. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one who comes to rescue people? Just a few days earlier, Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey. People had celebrated, said, Hosanna, save us. Jesus' popularity at this time among this throng of people, among this, 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 this crowd, was peaking. He had done miracles. They'd seen them. He had, people knew of political possibilities were under the, the, the thumb of the Roman government here. Maybe this Jesus will lead us out of that. And so there's this rampant enthusiasm around Jesus at this time. And you see, that's why the chief priests react in a certain way. Well, we can't, we can't just outright arrest him and kill him because the people will have an uproar. There's going to be a problem here. So, notice first this first group of people in verses 1 and 2, part 1 of the first story. 
the chief priests and the scribes, the religious professionals, how do they react to Jesus? They want to arrest him and kill him. Let's get rid of this Jesus. Why? Why do they want to do that? What is their value that spurs them towards this action? Their value is their power, their control, their influence. They love that position. They love that authority that they wield in that, in that culture, that they have authority in the, in, around the temple worship and how people behave. There's, you've seen that throughout Mark, and you'll see it in other parts of the Scriptures. These religious leaders love their authority, and so Jesus comes along, people get excited about him, and they're threatened by him. He has specifically called out these religious authorities' hypocrisy in chapter 12. He's condemned the practices going on in temple worship. Jesus has prophesied the very destruction of the temple, and these guys, they're ready to get rid of him. Here's the deal. If you hold on to power and authority above all else, Jesus will be a threat to you. Jesus doesn't fit in that value system. So, the reaction of the religious leaders might be similar to your reaction. Well, let's just get rid of Jesus and shove him to the side and focus on my power, my control, my authority. Some of us are in this boat. We love control. We love positions of influence. We love our power and our authority. Maybe it's in our job. We have a management role, and we get to direct people, and it just feels good to have that kind of power, doesn't it? Maybe it's in politics that you long for some level of power. If we could just have that kind of power. If that's your highest value, Jesus is not going to fit well in your life. It certainly doesn't work out so well for the religious leaders, and so they seek to kill him. Let's just get rid of him. So there's Mark, story number one, part number one. Your temptation, like the religious leaders, might be to think that life is about power and influence rather than reveling in the grace that has been given to you through Christ's death and resurrection. But here's the irony of the whole situation. What you have in Christ is infinitely greater than any power you can have in this world. Listen to Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Paul prays this, that they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For above all, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus has more power than all authority, all rule, all power. And in Christ, we're linked to that. So why are we striving for power? Any power and influence you have in this life should be used for the glory of God. It may be a gift for, for, to you. It may be a position that God has put you. But it's short-lived, and it pales in comparison to the power of the God of the universe. Through his Son, God's power works in his people. It changes people and transforms them into the image of Christ. If your value is power, 
Look to Jesus to find it. It's there in abundance for you. So Mark turns. You've got the religious leaders there plotting his demise. And Mark turns, and Jesus is outside of town, down the hill a ways, a few miles in Bethany, a small town that he liked to spend, in the house of Simon the leper, which is kind of interesting because lepers would have been kept outside of common society. They would not have been allowed in the house. So likely this is a guy named Simon the ex-leper. Well, Jesus did a lot of work in his day healing lepers. So I kind of think maybe, maybe Jesus actually healed this guy. Now he's having dinner at his house. He did that with Zacchaeus and others quite often. And so my mind kind of goes there. There's no definitive way I can prove that. People like to argue about who Simon is and it just goes down rabbit trails and I'm not going to go that way. But there is Jesus in the house of a guy named Simon who used to be a leper reclining at table. If you ever eat at a really good Mediterranean restaurant, really good Mediterranean restaurant, you recline at a table. Marianne and I used to have this restaurant we went to when we lived in Portland. Um, it was a Moroccan restaurant. I remember the first time you go in there, somebody had recommended it to us. We went in there, and instead of like a table and the chairs and all that kind of stuff, there's like a low table, maybe a foot or two, and there's cushions on the floor. And we were not prepared for this, right? We were ready for a nice sit-down dinner. Well, this is a lay-down dinner. And so we laid down on the cushions, and you kind of prop yourself up, and I, I just don't fit well on the floor very well, so I'm not sure how to sit. And, you know, but eventually, you kind of settle in. There's enough cushions, and then they serve you food, and you eat with your hands, and they bring out stuff to wash your hands. It's just super, super relaxing after you go there for a while and kind of get used to it. It just kind of takes a while. Well, in this society, Jesus, in these meals, would have been reclining at a table. He literally would have been laying down, eating probably propped up on one elbow, another elbow, another hand grabbing some food and putting it in his mouth. It's just a, for us, maybe a little uncomfortable, but for that society, that's just the normal way. And, you know, if you try it sometime, maybe for lunch today, um, you'll find that it's a, it's a very relaxing experience. Like, most of you spend a good deal of time on the couch eating, and so it's kind of like that anyway, right? Mm, sorry. So there is Jesus, there's the disciples reclining at the table, literally enjoying a good meal. There's comfort, there's friendship, there's laughter, there's rest. Maybe there's some stories being told. Remember when you stilled that storm and we were so freaked out, Jesus. Remember when you healed that guy, that the demon-possessed guy? Man, that guy was a nut. And what, what are he doing now? Uh, remember when those pigs went down into the sea, that whole like, herd of pigs, how mad those guys were? Oh, jeez. Remember... <laughs> Remember when you turned that water into like really good, good wine, like, like kind of cups empty here, Jesus? Can you do that one again, maybe? I don't, I don't know what the dinner looked like, but it's a very comfortable dinner, and it would have been all guys. In that society, ju judge it how you want, the men would have eaten, women would have served, later on the women would have eaten. I'm not going to get into that at all, into the politics or whatever of that, that's just how it was. And so there you have a bunch of guys reclining at table, comfortable, laughing, eating good food, or even if it's not good food, it's just simple, fun, comfortable dinner. And then, and then, it's interrupted. We don't like to be interrupted at our meals, right? I hate it when the door, the doorbell rings during a meal with my family. You're just like, oh, like, this is nice. We're having a good, this doesn't happen all the time for us, and all of a sudden we're interrupted. Can't we just enjoy a meal here? Somebody calls or 
whatever. Just, we don't like to be interrupted. And you can feel it here because a woman comes in. She's not carrying a tray of food either. She comes in and she's carrying an alabaster flask of pure nard. Now, most of you hear that and you're like, I have no idea what that is. So let me explain it to you. Nard was grown in the in India, essentially, what is now India, and transported all the way to, uh, to, to Israel, to Jerusalem and areas like that. And it's a pungent, pungent perfume. It's not the type of perfume that you just dab a little on your neck as you go out for dinner on a nice night or anything like that. This perfume, nard, was used, because of its potency, was used to mask the decaying smell of dead flesh. So when someone was buried, they were covered in this perfume so that you didn't smell the stink of rotting flesh. There wasn't quite the system that we have, and dead bodies stink when they decompose. And so you put this sort of thing. Now, because of the the transport distance, it took a long time to get there, it was incredibly expensive. And most families would have something like this, use it sparingly as much as possible, but it's a kind of a family heirloom almost, a valuable family heirloom, maybe reserved for one person perhaps even, worth about a year's wages. Now, tally up your income for a year and think, if I had a little jar worth that much, what would I do with it? <laughs> it's worth nearly a year's wages. And the woman comes in, and you know the dudes around the table, on their elbows, piece of bread halfway to their mouth are going, what? what in the world is she doing? What's she doing? And then she breaks it. It's a sealed jar. It doesn't have a screw on top or a cork or anything like that. She breaks it. It doesn't have a little mister or anything like that. She busts the head of the jar open, kneels down in front of Jesus, and pours thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of perfume over his head. It's a pungent, easily noticeable fragrance. This is not like the perfume that you put on. Um, I tried to think. What, I, I tried. Walgreens was out of nard um, last night when I went there, um, so I couldn't. I couldn't get some, and I didn't have a year's wages to spend anyway. So I did go down to Walgreens though, and I, I bought something that is about as pungent as um, as spike nard. This is Axe body spray. Um, this is the first time, for the record, I have ever bought Axe body spray, and this is their essence flavor or scent. Black pepper and cedarwood. Cedarwood. So now imagine there. Imagine the dinner party. Quiet. And imagine that this is somehow worth $50,000. I think these are like $7 and it was buy one, get one free at Walgreens last night. So it's pretty exciting. Imagine the dinner party. There's the disciples kind of going like, why are we getting interrupted? This is our guy, right? And in comes this woman and she pours this smelly, stinky stuff all over Jesus, right? All right, I'm just going to spray it a little bit here. Yeah, there you go. You see the reaction up here? Oh, man, that's horrible stuff. There you go. <laughs> smells like some of the teenage guys I work with. Uh, <laughs> smells like my son. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty potent. That's exactly what it would have been like in this room. They're smelling this stuff, but they realize, unlike Axe Body Spray, this is incredibly valuable stuff. We could have sold this. Now, 
an anointing like this is very meaningful in a lot of ways. Usually when someone would come over to your house as a gesture of hospitality, you would anoint their head with oil perhaps. At the anointing of a king or a priest, there was an oil that was put over the, the, uh, the, the, the king or the priest. So there's a lot of symbolism going on here, but the disciples are completely missing this. But they react. They start mumbling to themselves, right? They say indignantly to each other, how could she do this? You can hear them. They're, they're kind of like, hey, Simon, what, what did you, how did she do this? Why would she do this? That word indignantly, it actually is a word that also refers to horses that snort. So you can hear them as this room fills up with a scent. They're like, how could she do this? They're, just, they're, so, they're getting angrier and angrier as they look at this woman and realize what she has done. How could she? What a waste. Were the disciples concerned about the poor? Maybe. Part of the festival that they were about to experience was a, included a customary gift for the poor. And they were poor, right? So they're maybe thinking, like, we she could have just given us the bottle, we could have sold that, and we could have stayed at some pretty nice places rather than on the side of the road. They're mumbling to each other, turns, and they begin to scold the woman. The end of verse 5, they scolded her. Now think, how uncomfortable would this have been for that woman? Uninvited guest, she just gave this gesture of worship, and the disciples start to go after her. The woman's in a terribly uncomfortable spot. The disciples are mansplaining the proper thing to do with Nard. She's an uninvited guest. She knows Jesus is going to die soon, though, and she loves him for his sacrifice. And like the widow in chapter 12, she offers what she has. So you can feel the tension in this moment at this dinner party as the smell pervades the room like it does here. The disciples are going after the woman. And Jesus says some of the most beautiful things, one of the most beautiful lines in Scripture. Love it. Leave her alone. It's great. Perhaps the disciples' value was genuinely in helping the poor. Given their words and actions throughout Mark, I'm prone to think that their value was their position, first and foremost. They constantly were saying things like, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. Give us that great position in your kingdom. I think the disciples, as you read throughout Mark, valued their position. They loved to be seen as in the right. And we love to be seen as loved or in the right Look at our social media use. Look at our number of friends. We love to brag. But if you value your position above everything else, like the disciples may have, you'll misunderstand Jesus, and you'll miss his true worth. Your temptation will be to think that Jesus is there for your glory rather than the reverse. And here's the irony. Your position in Christ is loftier than you can ever attain. If you are in Christ, you are right now positionally seated with your Savior in the heavenly places. Again, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you want a lofty position of glory or influence or grandeur, look to Christ. 
Christ lifts up the humble to sit next to him. You're with him if you're in him. Well, Jesus responds, leave her alone. He sees her heart. She knows that Jesus, somehow she has heard and knows and realizes that Jesus is going to his death. That's why she anoints him for burial. He has said this plainly many times, at least three times in Mark, he said, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, and I'll rise again, but people have ignored that. There is this interesting phrase about the poor. It does not mean that you shouldn't give to the poor there. Or ignore that. It's based on a phrase in, or a statement in Deuteronomy 15, 11, where it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So Jesus is referencing this command to the people of Israel to give generously to the poor. He's not dismissing the poor here. He's saying, you don't understand what you actually do have in front of you in me. Giving to the poor is good. Generosity is commanded, but religious, pietistic activity devoid of Christ and the gospel are missing a real foundation. And in a humble, radical act of worship, the woman shows her understanding of Jesus in a way very similar to that widow in chapter 12. She gave what she could. And then Jesus responds and wraps it all up and says this, And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so this morning in Chaska, Minnesota, we are in some way fulfilling what Jesus predicted in Mark 14, 9. And I think that's pretty cool. If you value Jesus above all else, the loss of goods or the scorn of others is nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why is Jesus so valuable? Well, not just for his wise teaching, not just for his powerful miracles, not just for his love of children and outcasts. All those are good things and they make him beautiful and they're true, but it's his substitutionary death and resurrection that will ransom and save those whose faith is in him. One-third of Mark's gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. One-third of Mark. Some scholars like to say that Mark is two-thirds of preamble to the passion narrative around Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the focus of Mark. The reason Jesus came, according to verse 45 of chapter 10, is to serve and to, what was it? Give his life as a ransom for many. Why is Jesus so valuable? Because he died for you. He died for you so that you could be righteous, so that you could be with God that you can know him. Well, Mark, as he writes these stories, comes back to the original story, mentions Judas Iscariot. He gives this little line, he was one of the twelve, which just makes it all that more painful. Judas had walked with Jesus, seen the miracles, and now Judas goes to the chief priests to get what he can in order to betray Jesus. Judas, who just heard Jesus perhaps speaking again of his burial, realizes that Jesus is not a path to financial prosperity that he hoped for, and he seeks to get what he can. He betrays Jesus for a handful of silver. Judas' value? Money. Prosperity, right? But if you value prosperity over Jesus, you'll wind up disenchanted like Judas perhaps even betraying him for whatever coins you can get. 
Your temptation here is that Jesus exists for your success, for your prosperity, for your comfort, for your ease in life. But here's the irony. In Christ, you have riches that cannot be fathomed. And once again, Paul helps us feel it in his letter to the Ephesians. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is wealth in Christ, but not like we normally comprehend it. I'm 48 years old. I've been a Christian for over 40 years of my life. I've been to seminary. I've pastored churches. I've taught the Bible on multiple contents. I haven't even scratched the surface of the glory and riches that I have in Christ Jesus. Have you? Do you realize what you have in Christ? You see all these people around this this dinner scene here, striving for position or power or possessions or whatever it is, and it's right there in front of them in Jesus in ways that they can't even comprehend. And we live our lives the same way, don't we? Oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. Look what you have in Christ. Revel in that. So, Let's do some charting and spreadsheet analysis here. Four characters, and I apologize for the, uh, the D and the UD that got cut off there. That's probably my fault. Uh, four characters, the religious leaders, the disciples, Judas, and the woman. What did they value? Power, position, maybe the poor there, I don't know. Prosperity, and then Jesus' sacrifice and his presence. How did they react to Jesus? Because they wanted power, the religious leaders were threatened by Jesus. Because they wanted their position, the disciples continually misunderstood Jesus. Because Judas wanted prosperity, he was disenchanted with Jesus. Because this woman valued Jesus, she worshipped him. She didn't try to get rid of him. She didn't miss Jesus' real value. She didn't betray him. She was devoted to him. And if you remember Mark 4... You remember the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good fruit. The woman bears good fruit. Now let me just say this. There is hope for those of us who feel like the seed of God's word has fallen on the path or the rocky soil or the thorny seeds in our own life. Because these very disciples and even some of the religious leaders here will soon after, just a few months perhaps after, form the initial leadership of the early church that worshipped and proclaimed Christ to the ends of the earth. There is hope for those who feel like that seed has fallen on the path or the thorns or the rocks. But this passage pushes us to say, what do we value? What do we love? What do we cherish? And how does it affect our view and reaction to Christ? Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We sing a lot of songs here. We sang one that had this line at the beginning, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. We don't just sing them for Sunday morning. We also sing them, we sing songs like these, so that on Tuesday morning, 
when you don't get noticed at work for the good work you did on Monday, you can say, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. I don't need that praise. It's nice, sure, but that's not what I'm living for. Christ, my inheritance, is what I'm living for. When you do your budget, sit down to talk about family budget on Thursday night, and things are looking bleak, and vacation might have to be a staycation this year, whatever that is, you can say, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. I have Christ. All I have is Christ, and in him I have everything. So let me get a little pastoral on you as I wrap this up. If you think power is more important than Jesus, if you think authority is more important than Jesus, Jesus will not fit well in your life. Many of us have been given power and authority to steward. It's a gift. Use it for God's glory. Use it in a Christ-honoring way, but that is not what you live for. That is not your highest treasure. Christ is, and he's infinitely more satisfying than that. If you think position, influence, approval is more important than anything else in this world, you will misunderstand Jesus quite often. Many of us have been given positions of influence. Many of us have a lot of approval. That's great. That is not your highest treasure. Christ is. If you, like me sometimes, think that possessions are more important than anything else in this world, you will often be disenchanted with Jesus because he does not live to make you wealthy in this world. All of us have been given possessions to steward, to use for his glory, to be generous with. Do it, but don't live for them because you have something much better in Christ. And as you see the value of Christ, like this woman does, come to him and worship him. Bow your knee to him and honor him for his sacrifice for you. There's a legend about the painting of the Last Supper. As Leonardo da Vinci was painting it, he showed it to a friend, apparently. And I don't think Leonardo da Vinci is anything of a model Christian from what I've understood, but his desire in this painting was to show people the centrality of Christ, and you can see how things are pointed, the visual lines and all that sort of thing. Everything points towards Jesus at the center, even the gaze of many of the disciples, the discussions and the hands and that sort of thing. So da Vinci painted this thing, showed it to a friend, and the friend got fixated on a cup that was originally in Jesus' hand. said, man, just the artistic work of this cup that you, you painted is mind-blowing. And da Vinci apparently, according to legend, took out his brushes and started painting over the cup. And probably the friend said, that's the last time I ever give you a compliment. But da Vinci wanted everything in this, in this, in this portrait, um, unlike Dan Brown's summation of this portrait, da Vinci wanted everything to point towards Christ. He realized, at least in this portrait, everything's centered on Christ. The value of Christ, that's what life is about. This is not very accurate. <laughs> we'll probably discuss that over the next few weeks as we go towards that Last Supper episode. But the great thing about this painting is the centrality of Christ. And may our lives mirror that. Learn to treasure Christ above all, and you'll find something with more power, more glory, and more riches than you've ever dreamed of. Amen. Treasure Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, you... We have so much in you, and we are often blind to the 
grace and glory that we have in you because we are distracted by these things. We have wrongly bought the lie that life is about power or life is about position or life is about possessions, but life is about knowing and being found in Christ. May we as a church, may we as individuals revel in that goodness. Thank you for your sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.